My next guest is American writer, historian, actor and essayist whose acid wit has made him a hugely popular and indeed unpopular commentator. I like Gore when he's on this show. He says what is on his mind. Mr. Vidal has become a cultural icon. Prolific American novelist, playwright, screenwriter, historian, essayist. Conversationalist, actor, humorist and sometime political candidate. Would you welcome please Mr. Gore Vidal. From We Own This Town, this is Vidalatry. A look at the wit and wisdom in the spoken words of Gore Vidal. I'm Ryan Briegel. Gore Vidal was a regular presence on television in the 1960s. At the start of the decade, Richard Rivera of The New Yorker wrote, Stay at home at night, and like as not, you'll be assailed by Mr. Vidal on television. Gore was attractive, funny, and naturally argumentative, so when he showed up on game shows or talk shows of the day, it was guaranteed to be good television. And in 1968, the struggling TV network ABC realized this fact and decided to involve Gore in something no network had ever done before. 1968 was a wild year for the United States. Any sense of stability was gone. The Vietnam War seemed never-ending, and the social unrest in the youth of the country grew daily. The war weighed heavily on President Lyndon Johnson, and in March he shocked the nation when he announced he would not run for a second term. The country's civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, was shot and killed in April. Then the country's presidential hopeful, Bobby Kennedy, after securing a number of primary victories, was shot and killed in June. Riots raged across the nation, some expressions of anger towards what was happening in Vietnam, and others' reaction to America's racial inequality. Tensions ran high, and more than ever, people were excited yet anxious to know who was going to run the country for the next four years. With Johnson refusing to run again, both the Republican and Democratic conventions were up for grabs. Americans would be watching the activities at both conventions very closely. In past years, the three TV networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC, had all covered the conventions live from start to finish. But in 1968, ABC was in third place, and since they had little to lose, they decided to try something new. Instead of airing the conventions live, they would show the typical weekly sitcoms and dramas to generate commercial income, and then after the nightly news, they would have 90 minutes of what they called unconventional convention coverage, 15 minutes of which would be debate by two people from completely different sides of politics. For the conservative viewpoint, ABC chose William F. Buckley Jr., Buckley was a fairly well-known author and commentator who had founded the conservative magazine The National Review in 1955 and had begun hosting his own talk show, The Firing Line, in 1966. So the network knew he could handle himself on television. Buckley and Gore had crossed paths a few times already, and Gore had made enough of a negative impression on Buckley so that when ABC asked him, who would you not want to debate, Buckley answered, Gore Vidal because I had had unpleasant experiences with him in the past and did not trust him. And Gore, for his part, wasn't entirely keen on debating Buckley, complaining that being seated next to him would give Buckley too much credibility. 
but ABC needed to have lots of viewers for their experiment to succeed. And by finding out who each man did not want to debate, they now knew that these two men were almost guaranteed to bring the nightly fireworks. And in the end, whether it was the chance to declare their own viewpoints on a national stage, or the promise of a $10,000 fee, not a small sum in 1968, the two men signed on. The ABC press release read, William F. Buckley Jr. and Gore Vidal will discuss, in their usually irreverent fashion, the men and issues. Astute and articulate observers of the political scene, the conservative Buckley and outspoken liberal Vidal are expected to disagree occasionally. What an understatement. Gore and Buckley were hired to discuss the events of the conventions, but as the debates began, it became clear that they had arrived armed to destroy each other with words. We begin with the Republican convention, which was held in early August in Miami Beach. The leading candidates were a former vice president who went on to lose both a governor's race and a presidential race after leaving office, Richard Nixon, the current governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, and the current governor of California, Ronald Reagan. In the very first debate, there are a few topics brought up that are important to know about for context. In February of 1968, after writing a number of historical novels, Gore published the satirical Myra Breckenridge, the story of a beautiful woman who comes to Hollywood to claim an inheritance from her dead husband's family. But it is revealed that Myra is actually Myron, a man in the process of sexual reassignment surgery. Completely shocking for 1968, the book was a bestseller and also considered the height of vulgarity by people like Buckley, and you will see the speed in which he makes sure to bring up the novel. Also looked down upon by Buckley is the time each year Gore chose to spend in Italy. Since the 1950s, after he had written a few successful novels and plays and could afford the travel, Gore had been going back and forth from America to Italy for months at a time. Gore will bring this fact up first, but later Buckley will try to use the regular travels as an attack on Gore's patriotism, suggesting that Gore didn't deserve to have an opinion on Vietnam since he didn't live in America a full 12 months out of the year. The debates were moderated by Howard K. Smith, who had famously moderated the 1960 Kennedy-Nixon debates for CBS. Now working for ABC, he begins the first debate on August 3rd, 1968, by introducing the two men. First, Gore Vidal. A former Democratic candidate for Congress, but better known as an author of, among many other things, a play about a political convention. And then, William F. Buckley, Jr. A former conservative candidate for the mayor of New York, but better known as a columnist, commentator, and editor of the National Review. Smith poses his first question to Buckley, who immediately rebukes Smith for the way he chose to phrase his question. Mr. Buckley, who of the potential candidates do you think is, if I may steal a title from Mr. Vidal, the best man? Oh, I'm not prepared to say. I think that um, uh, several of them are highly qualified to be a good president. I think what you really mean to ask me, but are too shy, is who do I like most? <clears throat> to which my answer is that as a conservative, I am very much uh, uh, fetched by the programs of uh, Mr. Reagan and also of Mr. Nixon. Buckley would later write that Smith derailed him by asking that question rather than asking him to comment on Gore's past description of the Republican Party, as he had expected. And then it was Gore's turn. 
Can Mr. Vidal assess those candidates for us? What do you think of them? Well, I would come, I think, to a very different uh, point of view. I cannot possibly imagine Richard Nixon as the President of the United States. Uh, I think he is uh, essentially the hollow man that we always discussed. I think we're living in revolutionary times in which new programs are needed and that you're going to need somebody who can really, the young people in the country, the Negroes, the ghettos, the poor, are angry, restless. This is a terrible time. And here you have a man who, when he was in Congress, he voted against public housing, against slum clearance, against rent control, against farm housing, against extending the minimum wage. He was against, uh, or rather dubious about the 1954 Supreme Court decision bill. He said, I'm opposed to pensions in any form as it makes loafing more attractive than working. And now today he offers us a program for the ghettos, which he's made much of. And what is it? Well, he's going to give tax cuts to private businesses that go into the ghetto and to help uh, the Negroes. <clears throat> now, in actual fact, private business is set up to make private profits. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not in the business of philanthropy. So they'll get their tax cut and we'll have nothing in the ghetto, probably, but a, the rising expectation of what is now revolution. So I would say that, that as far as Mr. Nixon goes, I think he's an impossible choice domestically. It is interesting to note that throughout the debates, Gore refers to Buckley only as Bill, and Buckley refers to Gore entirely as Mr. Vidal. But so far, so good, both men staying on course, discussing the pros and cons of the leading candidates, but then Buckley decides to revisit an earlier statement Gore made describing the Republicans as a party based almost entirely upon human greed. It seems to me that the, um, the earlier focus of Mr. Vidal uh, here on human greed, you do remember, he found himself wondering whether a party that was devoted to the concept of human greed could have a hope to get a majority of the American people to vote for it. Now, uh, the, the author of Myra Breckenridge is well acquainted with the imperatives of human greed. <laughs> well, I would like to say, uh, Bill, uh, if, I, if I may say, Bill, but what dominates him before you go any further, I would like to say that if there were a contest for Mr. Myra Breckenridge, you would unquestionably win it. I based her entire style polemically upon you, passionate and irrelevant. That's too uh, involuted for you to follow the word. One of these days, perhaps you can explain You'll it. You'll follow it, yeah. Buckley would later admit at this point in the debates he had not actually read Myra Breckenridge, but was well aware of its notoriety. Gore continues with what has today become a cliché, that if the candidate we despise is elected, we will all move to Canada, or in Gore's case, Italy. And then every four years you get this sort of crocodile tears for the poor people because they need their vote. Well, I don't think that they're going to vote for any of your candidates unless by some terrible accident, the Democrats get split hopelessly at Chicago, which could well happen, and Eugene McCarthy's people not vote. In which case, I think uh, that Richard Nixon might very well become the next president, and I shall make my occasional trips to Europe longer. Yes, uh, I think uh, a lot of people hope you uh, will. Uh, <laughs> yes, Phil. <laughs> the debate a few days later on August 5th began with Gore making the point that he didn't subscribe to one particular party over the other all the while trying to keep things light and fun in Miami. Mr. Vidal, can you make the onerous effort of hypothesizing yourself a Republican for just a moment and saying which two you think would be strongest if you wanted to win for the Republicans? Well, that's quite easy for me since I'm not, don't think of myself as a Democrat either. I would say that watching the convention this morning, it became quite clear to me that John Wayne and his daughter 
would be the ideal ticket for the uh, party. Gore would later comment on John Wayne's notorious and somewhat contested draft dodging during World War II when John Wayne accused Vietnam protesters of being cowardly. Buckley goes on to dissect an earlier comment Gore made on Ronald Reagan as an aging Hollywood juvenile actor with a right-wing script to demonstrate that what Gore intended as an insult to Reagan was nothing more than stating common-sense facts. Everyone is aging, and obviously actors work in Hollywood. And then, as if he was paid to promote Gore's novels, Buckley again brings up Myra Breckenridge to suggest that Reagan might have acted wisely to stay away from any film projects written by Gore. Let Mr. Buckley finish this sentence, then Mr. Vidal, I assure you time to refute it. That ABC has the authority to invite the author of Myra Breckenridge uh, to comment comment on uh, Republican politics. I think that the people of California have the right, when they speak overwhelmingly, to project somebody into national politics, even if he did commit the sin of having uh, acted in movies uh, that were not written by Mr. Vidal. How about Mr. Vidal's answer to that now? Gore prided himself on the research he had done before the debates. He had collected many quotes and many statistics, but as if he was getting ready for a stand-up routine, he had also devised a number of witty lines ready to insert at just the right moment. And at this point, Gore thought it was the perfect time to unleash perhaps his most cleverly crafted William Buckley insults. Three of them, one right after the other. Well, as usual, Mr. Buckley, uh, with his enormous and thrilling charm, uh, manages to get away from the issue toward the comedy. He's always to the right, I think, and almost always in the wrong. And you certainly must, uh, Bill, maintain your reputation as being the Marie Antoinette to the right wing and continually imposing your own rather bloodthirsty neuroses on, on a political campaign. Gore seems especially pleased with his emphasis on Buckley as a prophet of greed in naming him the Marie Antoinette of the right wing. Buckley must have forgotten or never knew that Ronald Reagan had voluntarily auditioned for the lead in Gore's play, The Best Man, only eight years prior. Gore certainly could have made that point, but he chooses to continue with the issues and his pointed critique of the actor-turned-politician. Ronald Reagan says the only function of government is to get out of our way and leave us alone as much as possible. Now, on this occasion, I'm afraid I have to agree with William Buckley, the distinguished thinker, when he says, my favorite quotation from him, I have a treasury here, today as never before, the state is the necessary instrument of our proximate deliverance as usual, in your slightly Latinate and inaccurate style. But you do feel, as most of us do, that uh, the state must have some responsibility for what happens in the country. And now you have a Ronald Reagan, whom you approve of, who does not want to use the federal government to do anything at all. Mr. Smith, uh, I I confess that anything complicated confuses Mr. Vidal. (laughs) This has been plain for a very long time. As he does so often, if Buckley didn't like what Gore had to say, he either claimed that Gore was confused or that Buckley himself didn't understand the point Gore was trying to make. But to combat Buckley's feigning understanding, Gore knew that sarcasm was often the best weapon. I'm so happy to see your elegant prose style at its very best tonight, Bill. It's very inspiring to those of us listening to it. By the fifth debate, the news of the entertaining war of words between Gore and Buckley had traveled overseas, as Howard K. Smith introduced them with a term created by the BBC. I'd like to call on our guest controversialists. And they begin with a discussion on fair or open housing, where the buyer is protected from seller discrimination, 
and specifically whether Nixon is for it or against it. Very good, Bill. Very good. I just sort of feel, I, I feel we're waffling now. I have a sense out there that there's a convention going on. And, uh, Does that mean you don't know what to say? No, I know what to say. I just finished saying it, that Richard Nixon has come out against open housing, and he's explained well, to the Southern Caucus that uh, he said one thing to the public and people, another lots, thing yeah. to... Uh, lots of people come out against... Uh, open housing, the Democratic mayor of Milwaukee. Now, don't I'll bring it... Fought, fought against open housing but what, what, years what is, because wait, wait, he thinks wait. it's wrong, you see, yes, because he thinks it's unconstitutional. Yes, and, and my Aunt Finita's against it, too, but we're talking about Richard Nixon, who, yeah. who was running, running yeah, for I know, president. But, I know, but you only bring it up because... Because you're running for president, we're talking no, no, about no. Richard Nixon. Because you assume that one can draw certain inferences from it. I'll say you can. that suggest that Mr. Nixon uh, is delinquent in a morally sensitive area. I would say that Mr. Nixon was, has proven himself to be all things to all men, if I may quote, quote St. Paul to you, and uh, he continues to do so. And I am disturbed. Why, does he, was, why did he lose election? If he proved that, why did he lose an election? If he proved that he was all things to all men? Come on, why, why, why? <laughs> because it, because, does, because it doesn't always work, and you can't fool all the people all the time, except, well, perhaps, he didn't prove. except perhaps on television. Then he wasn't no doubt a direct dig at Buckley, who Gore would say was currently fooling anyone watching. For the record, Nixon was initially against open housing, then after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination was momentarily for open housing, but after becoming president, he wrote of open housing... I am absolutely opposed to this. All things to all men, indeed. But as Gore laments, voters rarely remember a candidate's viewpoint on any subject for very long. I must say this is one of the strangest countries on earth that nobody's record ever matters at all. I must say I think the public's memory is about four weeks at best, and I say this sadly on all issues. And with that, the Republican convention was over. Nixon won the nomination with almost 700 votes to Rockefeller's 277. Reagan had even fewer. Before the debates, ABC had been mocked for choosing to not cover the conventions live, as if they weren't being true to political journalism. But when the Buckley-Vidal nightly debates took ABC from third place to first place, the jeering ended. And then, just a few weeks later, began the Democratic Convention. The leading nominees were President Johnson's current vice president, Hubert Humphrey, a current Minnesota senator, the very anti-war Eugene McCarthy, and a current South Dakota senator, George McGovern. The convention was held in Chicago, and before it began, word had spread that a number of anti-war youth groups were coming to the city to protest what was happening in Vietnam. In an effort to quell any anticipated violence, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley announced he would not grant permits for legal protests. And he increased the police and National Guard numbers to 23,000, claiming the existence of assassination plots, some with him as the target. In the debate on August 27th, the second day of the convention, Buckley begins in a slightly morbid way by producing a letter he claims was written to him by Bobby Kennedy in early 1968, only a few months before the senator was killed. Mr. Vidal's suggestion that uh, perhaps it would be in our interest to uh, uh, support uh, Ho Chi Minh suggests perhaps also <clears throat> that as a matter of uh, testamentary integrity, uh, I reveal a concrete proposal to that end, contained in a letter sent to me by Senator Kennedy about six months ago, uh, the P.S. of which was, uh, I have changed my platform for 1968 
from Let's Give Blood to the Viet Cong to Let's Give Go of a Doll to the Viet Cong. <coughs> May I see that, <laughs> really? I think, uh, however, that would be uh, immoderate. In any case, uh, uh, I do share uh, uh, Mr. I Kennedy's... Say. Uh, Mr. Kennedy's uh, 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 notion that Mr. Vidal's uh, uh, idea of how to prosecute the whole situation out there, quite apart from the fact of a congruence of general policy, uh, is marred by his uh, sort of strange fantasies uh, concerning the realisms of politics. I must say, I'm looking at this, <clears throat> what a very curious handwriting. It all sort of slants up, a sign of a manic depressive. Did you um, say that about Senator Kennedy? Uh, I did see that. Whether you forged it or not, I don't know, and I will have to have my handwriting experts. The graphologists will have to look at it. I put nothing beyond you, not since the Dreyfus case, and we had such evidence brought into court. But it's very, very amusing and has nothing to do with the case. The fact that he was writing you letters makes me terribly suspicious of him as a presidential candidate. I will say that. I'm not talking On about the actual Kennedy, fact, you know. This is Senator Bobby Kennedy. Yes, I, yeah. I realize. I recognize the handwriting. Mm -hmm. I thought he said makes, he had makes some notes you, about you. Makes me, you yes. suspicious. Yeah, uh -huh. makes me very suspicious what he might have been like as president. But to get back to the plank, uh, while we, it's been fun inspecting your correspondence. As we'll learn in a future episode, Gore and Bobby Kennedy strongly disliked one another. So the idea that Bobby would write such a thing certainly didn't catch Gore by surprise. In fact, he seems to almost take a certain joy in it. But having read a letter from a recently deceased politician hopeful, they get right back into the war at hand. For a moment, anyway. But what matters here is that we have, in a word, lost the war. And I think that that was really well, the impression that the McCarthy McGovern people have been trying to give the country, that we must get out of this. It's cost us $100 billion. It's cost us 25000 dead. It has cost us something, something like 90% of the casualties are civilians. So when they accuse us of genocide, they... Uh, are not without point. Now, wait a minute. We have nothing to gain by this war. Now, wait a minute. Uh, uh, the activity of the United States in, in North Vietnam <clears throat> uh, cannot, be, cannot be categorized as genocide uh, by anyone who doesn't accept the postulates of the Communist Party. Their postulates being, of course, that we are interested in killing people for the sake of killing people, the distinction being how many people is it necessary <clears throat> to kill in order to pursue a perfectly legitimate military mission. And then Gore seems to realize that the way to get a real rise out of Buckley is to accuse him of being something Buckley does not want to be known as, even if all evidence points to that very thing. In this case, a warmonger. One note, the audio quality of this portion of the debate is unfortunately very glitchy, but enough has survived to get the point across. And uh, here we are today, you and you were talking in the vaguest and vaguest of terms, saying, now we're going to win in Vietnam. Now, I assume that you are for, for no, estimation. I said we could, I said we could win. I oh, but you said right you will. We must. I said we could, Mr. Vidal. Ah, but you, you don't. don't should, could we or should we? Oh, well, obviously, we should. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, that's all we needed to know. Now, yeah. here he sits. Take a good look at the leading warmonger in the United States. Bill, don't you point your tongue at me now. Keep <laughs> it in your cheek where it belongs. Well, if I'm the leading uh, warmonger uh, in the United States, then uh, I am to be contrasted with you in the sense in which uh, the majority of the people of the United States, including the leadership of the Democratic Party and the leadership of the Republican Party, belong with me, uh, while you uh, go to Rome uh, and uh, expatriate yourself. Uh, I do not even, oh, I think, I think we should straighten this yeah. out now. I don't expatriate myself. I have an apartment in Rome, and I go there for two or three months every year to be close to the Vatican and to contemplate William yeah. Buckley and his mad activities back here. And with enormous serenity, they're trying to get us, Bill. 
Right there you can hear something metal hitting the floor in the background, and also Gore's quick-witted response, clearly proud of himself, for turning Buckley's claim that Gore was a traitor, for choosing to live part-time in Italy, into something everyone should laugh at instead. And then came the debate on August 28th. This day was especially tense in Chicago. Outside the convention center, 10,000 demonstrators showed up to protest, permits or no permits. At one point, the police swarmed upon the gathered protesters, deploying tear gas, which made its way into the convention center. Gore had chosen to not wear his glasses on camera for the earlier debates, but on this day, the tear gas was so strong, he was forced to wear them so he could read his notes. Buckley was worse off. The day before he arrived in Chicago, he had fallen on his yacht and fractured his collarbone. He was given a brace to wear, but he refused to wear it on camera, despite being in great pain. And the protests that went on outside his hotel had made it impossible for him to sleep the night before. In such pain, and quite sleep-deprived, it's no wonder he sounds a little on edge. Graphic video footage of the fighting was shown immediately before the debate, and Smith starts by asking Gore his thoughts on what they had just witnessed. Our two guest commentators, William Buckley and Gore Vidal, and to ask them uh, what observations they've made about the security that we uh, have seen all week at this convention and the events tonight on the streets beyond this uh, convention hall. Uh, is, who is first? Mr. Vidal first. I think uh, there's very little that we can say after those pictures that would be in any way adequate. Uh, it's like living under a Soviet regime here. The guards, the soldiers, the agents provocateur on the parts of the police you've seen the roughing up. Gore goes on to bring up Tom Hayden, future husband of Jane Fonda, and also one of the founders of the Students for a Democratic Society. And Gore's strong belief that peaceful protesting and the demonstration of one's convictions is a basic right of every American, and that Mayor Daley was primarily to blame for the violence that ensued. Furthermore, when you start quoting Tom Hayden uh, and the other leaders of the New Left who were involved in this, I suggest you get the quotes right. They are talking about revolution. They are not talking about bloody civil war, yeah. as you would indicate. Yeah, yeah. Well, until you get the exact quotes, well, you're well-known All you do is violate the law, you distortion. And, and leave it to it somebody else. It is no violation like... of the law to it's... freely demonstrate, no, as you well minute. know. Now, wait a minute. The law is not something that you make up. No, it's uh, something it, in the Constitution yeah, that you cannot yeah, interpret. Yeah. They came yeah. here for free assembly. Yeah. They came here to demonstrate against the Vietnam War, which you happen to love. I'm because sorry for that. Yeah. They have not been allowed to hold a meeting in Soldier Field, which they should have had, could have had, would have had a peaceful demonstration. Instead, the police, fired by Mayor Daley and by a lot of jingos around here, have been roughing up everybody from the press to the delegates to the kids out there, uh, and you are to sit here yeah. by and talk about the order. order. Here, Gore is mocking Buckley for his earlier overuse of the statement, law and order, a popular platform for Nixon in 1968. The discourse that follows guaranteed fame for both men, but not in ways they would have ever chosen. Buckley clearly on the side of the police, and Gore wholeheartedly on the side of the protesters, as Gore describes what he'd witnessed that week. However, when they were in the parks on Monday night when I observed them, I watched the police come in like this from all directions, standing. They were sitting there singing folk songs. There were none of the obscenities which your ear alone seems to have picked up. 
They were absolutely well-behaved. And suddenly the police began. You'd see one little stirring up in one corner. Then you'd suddenly see a bunch of them coming in with their nightclubs. And, may I say, without their badges, which Mr. is illegal. Mr. Vidal, wasn't it a provocative act to try to raise the Viet Cong flag in the park in the film we just saw? Uh, wouldn't that invite... Uh, raising a Nazi flag in World War II would have had similar consequences. You must realize what some of the political issues are here that many... People in the United States uh, happen to believe that the United States policy is wrong in Vietnam and the Viet Cong are correct in wanting to organize their country in their own way politically. This happens to be pretty much the opinion of Western Europe and many other parts of the world. If it is a novelty in Chicago, that is too bad. But I assume that for the point of the American yes. democracy and some is you can express Nazi, any point of view you want. Nazi. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And Some people were pro-Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm you don't concerned, the only sort of pro-crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Uh, Failing that, let's, I would let's, only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of assembly. Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling names. I'll you in your goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's... Let the author Myron Bracken, Breckenridge I, go back to his pornography and stop making any allusions of Nazism to somebody who was to. infantry in the last war. You were not in the infantry, Nazi. as a matter of fact. I was not. Now you're distorting your own military yeah. record. Mr. Vidal, what wasn't happened it, to Sharon? Wasn't it a provocative act to pull down an American flag and put up a Viet Cong flag, even if you disagree with what the United States is doing? It is not a provocative act. You have every right in this country to, to take any position you want to take because we are guaranteed freedom of speech. We've just listened to a because all three men are mostly speaking at once, and it is often hard to hear what is being said, we will now have a reenactment of this moment in the August 28th debate. This way, each speaker can be heard clearly, and then we can look at what was being discussed and how it so quickly got out of hand. The words of Gore Vidal will be read by Winston Maupin. The words of William F. Buckley Jr. will be read by Doug McCoy and I will read the words of Howard K. Smith. We begin with Gore. I assume the point of American democracy is you can express any point of view you want. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. Some people are pro-Nazi, and the answer is that they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. I know you don't care. As far as I'm concerned, the only pro- or crypto-Nazi I can think of is yourself. Failing that, I would only say that we can't have... Let's stop calling names. Now listen, you queer. Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi or I'll sock you in your goddamn face and you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's not call names. Oh, Bill. Let Myra Breckenridge go back to his pornography and stop making any illusions of Nazism. Gentlemen, please. I was in the infantry in the last war and fought Nazism. You were not in the infantry. As a matter of fact, you didn't fight in the war. You're distorting your own military record. What happened at Sharon? Mr. Vidal, wasn't it a provocative act to pull down an American flag and put up a Viet Cong flag, even if you disagree with what the United States is doing? It is not a provocative act. You have every right in this country to take any position you want to take because we are guaranteed freedom of speech. We've just listened to a certainly grotesque example of it. Gore would later explain that he had intended to call Buckley fascist-minded, but that Smith's reference to the Nazi flag and the heat of the moment put him off his original course. Buckley latched on to Smith's reference to the Nazi flag and for a moment brought up as a concept the time that American Nazi Party founder and Holocaust denier George Lincoln Rockwell led a march of his followers into Illinois, only to be turned away by the people of the town. 
And then very curiously, Buckley uses the story to compare the American Nazi party who had been ostracized to the current Vietnam protesters, who he felt should also be ostracized. Of course, Gore stops him before he can make much of a point, knowing it would truly throw Buckley off if he were accused of being a Nazi himself. They argue about Buckley's war record, and then Gore says, what happened at Sharon? The Sharon he refers to is Sharon, Connecticut, the small town where Buckley grew up with his nine brothers and sisters. In the spring of 1944, when Buckley was actually away serving in the military, Gore was probably wrong about Buckley's war record, a Jewish couple bought a house in Sharon, and the covertly anti-Semitic townspeople blamed the real estate agent who sold the couple the house. The real estate agent was married to an Episcopal minister, and in May of 1944, the church was vandalized. Naked photographs stuffed into Bibles, honey and feathers poured over the pews. Evidence was soon discovered at the Buckley home. Three of Buckley's siblings confessed, but no serious punishment came to the vandals. It's curious that Gore would bring up what happened in Sharon at this point in the debate, when William F. Buckley Jr. himself had nothing to do with the incident unless Gore realized that the best way to back up his crypto-Nazi claim was to show that Buckley came from a family of anti-Semites. And while he wasn't able to say much about the incident during the debate, we'll soon learn that Gore saved the full story for a magazine article he would write the following year. Having witnessed more drama than he was prepared for, Howard K. Smith wrapped up this debate in the kindest way he knew how. I think, uh, I think we've run out of time, and I uh, thank you very much for the discussion. It was a little more heat and a little less light than usual, but uh, it was still very worth hearing. After Smith signaled for the cameras to stop broadcasting, Buckley reported that Gore whispered to him, Well, I guess we gave them their money's worth tonight. Buckley then made his way to his own trailer, shaking and full of indignation, when his trailer door swung open and there entered Gore's close friend, the actor Paul Newman, who had been watching the debate backstage. Newman expressed his disgust. Buckley asked, have you ever been called a Nazi? And Newman replied, that was purely political. What you called him was personal. An important distinction Gore himself would make again and again. Gore and Buckley were obligated to appear for one last debate the following night, and they made the most of it. But after this final debate on August 29, 1968, the two men would not see or speak to each other ever again. In that final debate, Smith asked Gore what he thought about the effectiveness of future presidential debates, and Gore's answer could be viewed as a reflection on his own experience with Buckley. What do you think, Mr. Vidal, about the ability of the two men to handle issues in public in contest with one another? Well, no reflection, Mr. Smith, upon your first debate, which I remember very well, between Kennedy and Nixon. But I think these great debates are absolutely nonsense. Uh, the way they're set up, there's almost no interchange of ideas, very little even of personality. If we remember, everybody decided that Nixon looked rather disagreeable, that Kennedy didn't look as young as they'd been told. He looked much solider. He seemed to have a nicer smile. It was much more, it's too frivolous. There's also the terrible thing about this medium that hardly anyone listens. They sort of get an impression of somebody and they think that they figure, figure out just what he's like by seeing him on television. This would mean that you might have the most disastrous man in the country, about to be a good television performer, and he could beat, let us say, Senator Taft a virtuous man of no great telegenic charm. Uh, 
So all in all, if I may, I hate to suddenly come out against the idea of debate in our lives, but the way they are now set up on television, I, I don't think I'd even bother to watch this one. And with those words, the Democratic Convention came to a close. The nominee was Hubert Humphrey, who would go on to be defeated by Richard Nixon that November. William F. Buckley Jr. was humiliated and felt he needed to explain all that went on during both sets of debates, so he asked the editor of Esquire, Harold Hayes, if he could write his own account. Gore learned of this when Hayes agreed to Buckley's request on the condition that Gore could respond in a subsequent issue. With this, Hayes knew he had two months of Esquire that would sell very well. After their pieces went back and forth between their lawyers and Esquire's lawyers, Buckley's very long article finally appeared in the August 1969 issue, one year after the debates began. Titled, On Experiencing Gore Vidal, and full of many interesting details, Buckley basically gives a justification for everything he said, yet ends with the line, The imputation of it in anger is not justified, which is why I herewith apologize to Gore Vidal. Gore's article, titled A Distasteful Encounter with William F. Buckley Jr., appeared one month later, and it curiously begins and ends with a retelling of the incident in Sharon, where the church was vandalized. But because Gore never openly stated that Buckley wasn't a part of the vandalism, and because of some insinuations he made about Buckley's sex life, Buckley sued Gore for libel, claiming he had been defamed. Gore countersued, and after three years of fighting, Esquire got Buckley to drop the suit in exchange for free advertising in the magazine for Buckley's own periodical, The National Review. Buckley boasted that Gore settled with him for hundreds of thousands of dollars, which Gore says is entirely untrue. Gore claims that when he told Buckley he was ready to go to court to discuss his family's past indiscretions, Buckley immediately dropped the suit as he discusses on Thomas Braden's talk show in 1984. Right, let me ask you about Buckley as long as we put it out. Uh, let's get it out. Let's get it uh, out. Is yeah. Buckley a crypto-Nazi? Oh, come on, Tom. Oh, my. Well, I'd like to know what oh. he thinks. What he thinks, but I, I told you I never say what I think on television. After you, all, if, if, apparently if, if, you if, didn't if I'm once. thinking... Oh, no, I was just joshing Bill. All right. He is a wonderful American. And he sued you just as a big joke. Yeah, he sued me, and now that you brought it up, do you realize that I was looking forward to going into court, and he were going to clobber him with a lot of very interesting material, and he dropped the suit two weeks before we were to go into court and declared a great victory. As Gore later wrote about Buckley, like Hitler, but without the charm, he believed the bigger the lie, the more it would be accepted. From the Buckley debates, Gore learned the value of staying calm when your opponent becomes angry. And this would prove to be a wise approach, because just two years later, Gore would find himself verbally attacked on national television by, of all things, a pal of Buckley's, a very mean and very drunk Norman Mailer. Vidolatry is brought to you by We Own This Town. This episode was written and produced by me, with additional research by Joshua Reese. 
Thank you to Winston Maupin and Doug McCoy for lending their voices to this episode. You can find more information about this episode at vidolatry.com. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening.